Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 20. I'm Joshua. And I'm Mike. And uh, 20, huh? 20. That's a, that's a lot. That's more than 19. Yeah, over what, two years? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we <laughs> we certainly, when we started out with the podcast, we always said we didn't want to be you know, have a schedule dictated to us. And so we've been practicing freedom in that <laughs> regard. But uh, here we are. Yeah. Recording another. It's always fun. Yeah. Uh, lots of stuff going on around here. Mm-hmm. Right. A few new things. Yeah. Um, besides issue nine, which I'm very close to finishing the design for. Um, I have two articles to design mm. and then it's it's done. It's actually going out for copy editing. Uh, after after this week of work so um yeah that's coming up uh really good and we released a um uh, a table of contents blog series uh, as we usually do on our blog we released uh one article per day and just gave a brief description of uh what the article is about and so a few pictures from it so uh you can check our blog for for updates on that right we have um in our store and sitting here right next to us in the shop, a uh, new t-shirt design. It's yep. very cool. We have resurrected the classic uh, We Plane, We Saw, We Conquer yep. um, logo f- uh, phrase on the back. And on the front is a really cool um, illustration of a thumbhole rip saw in use. And that was from um, a, a book that we featured an excerpt from in the last issue yeah the park book yeah yeah so um we just feel like it's a really powerful image of the rip saw in action and it just cried out you know yeah we saw we conquered yeah kind of exactly like, it just looks so fun and so powerful so mm. um yeah and we, we get emails about that uh we got emails about that phrase and people wanted our original shirt so we thought yeah this is the right Let's image for that saying right and we have uh in the shirt, we have uh, women's sizes and youth sizes as well. So yep. uh, all kinds of variety, two different colors. Uh, and it's a really comfortable shirt. Um, we've gotten some good feedback on it as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. Um, also new, and uh, the, the physical form of this just arrived the other day, but uh, the Greenwood video, the, the latest installation of the Apprenticeship series, uh, is out uh, it is um, focus on working out in the woods, uh, greenwood working, and kind of the whole mindset behind, um, I guess, taking a, a broader look at vernacular woodworking, uh, where you are starting in the woods at the tree and processing stock down to um, you know, the, the sizes that you need down into the raw materials for different projects and then um, working through different aspects of, you know, wood that shrinks when it dries or can be manipulated and steam bent and worked with tools that you carry into the woods. Uh, so that video is out and available and uh, the DVDs just got here. And so uh, we'll be sending for all of those of you who ordered the DVD that will be coming your way uh, this week, so or you can do that. immediate streaming download yep. right now. So right yep. this second, if you're fast enough. <laughs> um, 
So as our discussion today, we kind of wanted to talk along those lines of uh, working outside. Um, yeah. the, the Greenwood video, really, we, we wanted to focus on uh, basically taking the shop to the woods and what that looks like. You know, historically, um, it's been done for centuries from the, the High Wycombe Bodgers who would spend the whole summer in the beech woods um, in the UK turning out chair parts on their spring pole lathes. And they'd, they'd live in their, their little hovels that they'd, they'd pile up all the shavings on the outside um, for insulation as the summer went on. It got colder, uh, you know, chilly and wet. Uh, but also the idea of um, people who would work in the woods building birch bark canoes or uh, just the fact that most pre-industrial um, workers would go into the woods to source some or a lot of or most of or all of their materials. And so they, um, they were out there. They were really connected with the landscape. Uh, and not so much isolated in, you know, a climate controlled fluorescent lit uh, concrete floored shop space like uh, so many of us are today. Uh, so we just kind of wanted to talk about that concept. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a, a different view of woodworking than we're familiar with. Uh, so Joshua, you have been outside yeah. most of the summer so far yeah i mean i've my family's uh, taken much of the summer to uh, expand our our homestead so this is a, a different thing than woodworking but it just i think it sheds some light on uh, the value of being outside and seeing uh, the beauty of nature um, we do a lot of you know gardening and farming uh, with animals we have goats and chickens and ducks and things like that so we've been um, this year we've taken this summer to expand all that and I've been doing the, I would say the vast majority of my time this summer has been farming. Mm. Um, and so that's been great to, to be outside and to engage with the natural world and, and see, uh, things come up. And right now we are swimming in zucchinis Yep. and we're making <laughs> zoodles We're turning them into noodles. And, uh, we've got all these crazy things, uh, just exploding. We also got um, pigs this year for the first time, uh, Mangalitsa pigs from Austria. They're awesome. Um, yeah. And they're beautiful creatures. And so it's, we just got a, two of them. Uh, so we'll, we're doing rotational grazing and, um, it's just a, a really rewarding thing to be outside watching nature, seeing all these different creatures interact and different plants come up. And every summer I just learn so much about different, uh, aspects of this. So Pigs are new to our family and it's a totally different species and it's interesting watching. I know what a goat is like and I know what uh, a duck is like, how a duck is different from a chicken, you know? Yeah. And then we see these pigs and we're all looking at them like, I don't get you. You're different. You have different <laughs> ways of carrying yourself. And so it's just a, an exciting, exhilarating thing. It's like to, the, to the, be outside and experience that the um, the Joel Salatin book about the was it the wonderful pigness of pigs yeah the, the marvelous marvelous of, that's yeah, right the marvelous pigness of pigs and yeah. celebrating the their uniqueness yeah um, and so yeah I mean my whole thinking these, these past oh, spring and summer it's all been about uh, celebrating being outside and mm. experiencing that and it's involved um, some woodworking a lot of it's been. Uh, more carpentry type stuff, outdoor woodworking. But um, 
but just being able to appreciate the seasons and we just actually uh we bought a greenhouse that we had to disassemble um it was conveniently very close like uh joshua you were you were telling me that um uh you were looking around for for greenhouses for sale like on uncle henry's and craigslist and somewhere in new hampshire which would have been really inconvenient yeah um this one happened to be a mile up the road that just yeah. kind of yeah you you came across and uh so that was several days of uh us and our friend nevin carling yeah. he he's been down in the area and he uh came and helped us out and uh working in a greenhouse on a hot and sunny day not a good idea kind of intense uh <laughs> it, it's like it works really yeah well. it's like you know trying to disassemble a, a sauna while it's fired up right from the inside uh so drinking lots of water was key because yeah. we've had some hot days uh this year this has been a real summer yeah um but the greenhouse project was a lot of fun it was uh, what is the footprint of that uh it's 27 wide by 50 long okay yeah so it's a decent sized greenhouse a big um, metal frame and we took it down and loaded it in your van in multiple trips and brought it up the road um and uh again you know it's just wonderful to be out there and to you know, we're watching the clouds, hoping they'll roll in and shade the sun a little bit and offer a little bit of relief. The other thing we, we talked about in that situation was, I remember reading in, um, I think it was a Stuart Edward White book about um, being in the forest on a really hot day. And he talks about that little breath of wind, that little breeze that you get sometimes that is just like the most luxurious feeling in the world in that moment when you're you've been perspiring and you're exhausted and you're worn out and that little breeze just catches you and we got some of that while we were over there uh i'm like yeah there it is (laughs) nice little breeze yeah but um yeah it's a good feeling to be soaking in sweat and go home for lunch and make an iced coffee and say oh yeah lots of good work uh, happening so yeah i mean that's that's not directly woodworking but um it's it's points to when you do start with projects woodworking projects outside all those kinds of benefits of that people talk about for gardening or farming or hiking or a lot of those things the news here is that you can have those same things in woodworking projects because you can do them outside a lot of the operations you can do outside yeah so uh, yeah. Yeah. Some of the some of the things that we've we've talked about, kind of the a drum we've beat over the years, is how interesting it is that um, that people will get into their car and they'll drive a few miles to the gym, and they will exert themselves and sweat, you know, all over the machine, and then they'll get go home, get cleaned up, and then they uh, when they're working in their shop, they're talking about trying to minimize the amount of effort they need. So they'll, they'll switch to, you know, um, power tools or some sort of device that minimizes the amount of effort you need to put in because you don't want to work too strenuously um, in your shop. And that just seems like there's a, a bit of a, a disconnection there. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, some of the things that um, in the Greenwood video, 
like I was working out in the woods. Uh, some of the days of filming were kind of warm. There are definitely days that were, uh, so this video I'll say was filmed in, you know, multiple seasons. We've been actually, some of the footage that is um, made the final cut of the video is like a year and a half old. Um, so some of the, we, we shot some, some B-roll at different times, different seasons to get this, um, big picture view of, you know, working within the cycles of the seasons outside. And so early spring in Maine is a great time to be out. It's nice and cool. There are no bugs late spring in Maine, less ideal. However, there are lots of ways to, to deal with it. Um, you know, in the video several times. As I'm working out there, I have a low smoky fire going, and that is a great way to, um, not only you're using the scraps that you are generating, but you know keeping the bugs away, and it's also just a great, you know, thing to enjoy. You know, people have sat around fires for millennia. Yeah, right. uh, it's kind of a basic human thing to do. Um, so just different things like that 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 we really wanted to highlight in the video. Um, being outside and working, uh, not trying to either um, overmatch, overpower the environment or to force it to being what you need, but just kind of going with the flow. Um, so what kind of projects um, do you think uh, make the most sense to try to tackle outside? Because I can definitely picture someone saying, okay, well, I want to build a table or a chest of drawers or something right. and say, well, so I don't get what you guys are talking about. So what kind of projects uh, maybe uh, did you tackle in the video, but also what kind of projects would you start in the woods for? Yeah, exactly. So um, in the video, what, what we were going for was kind of a, um, the apprenticeship foundations video was, was sort of an overview of a lot of um, the tools and the techniques involved specifically in in woodworking and so this was kind of an overview of tools and techniques for for green woodworking so there are a lot of what you when you think of green woodworking you might pop to spoon carving or you might think of um like the making the alexander chair um all of these both of those things can be done entirely from start to finish in the woods um there are other aspects of things i a few years ago was that issue three, I believe? I made a candle stand where I started in the woods, felled a tree, and um, and rived it up and then brought those pieces in and let them dry for a few months and then finished it in the shop. And so that is um, another way of looking at it where you can be starting a, uh, starting the process in the woods, you know, and I, I think that gives you an important connection to your materials because you can always remember, hey, that's the stump of the tree that that piece of furniture came from. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but then dry the materials to the point where it's most useful to you um, and then use it. Uh, but the other thing is um, we talked about uh, one of the benches in our shop here upstairs. It's a nine foot bench and it's a bench that we bring to um, woodworking shows and stuff like that. It's just a really useful big space uh, for if we want to do, you know, a little bit of demonstrating or have lots of stuff piled on it. Um, it's a really handy bench. And when we built that, we were in the, 
the old studio space, which was a little bit limited. Yeah. So we moved outside yep. to, to build the bench. Um, we brought all the components out and laid it all out and cut joinery out there and put it all together. Um, yeah. Outside. I mean, that's the thing about a workbench too. <clears throat> Most of us are, are working in relatively small spaces. We don't have huge, uh, facilities to be able to fit whatever size bench we want so probably most of us we're trying to maximize the bench length we're trying to get as long as we can within the space we have mm. so if you're going to say i mean if if you have a 12 foot space mm-hmm. don't make an eight foot bench right make a 10 foot bench if, yeah if at all possible if it can fit in the room yeah but how in the world would you make a 10 foot bench in a 12 foot space right <laughs> i mean that's pretty limited so um so that's why for us, you know, we want to be able to bring that outside um, to build this bench and then you can, you know, bring it in in pieces and, and install it in place. Um, but don't feel like you're you're limited by the size of workbench because, or in the size of workbench because of the, the little shop space you have. Right. Uh, fill that space up with a horizontal surface that you can work on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if you have to build it outside, that's fine. It's, it's a delight to work outside. So, yeah. yeah. Um, how uh, how often this summer have you gotten rained out when you've been? It's been a pretty dry. It's year. actually been a pretty dry summer. So, yeah. um, uh, we appreciate it when rain comes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, we had but... some nice long rain showers this morning. It was this uh, kind of dark, dreary, and awesome rainy morning today. Yeah. Uh, very quiet. The rain just you know dripping off the roof. I mean, I think the thing, what I would say, though, is I used to have my pole lathe, my spring pole lathe outside. Mm. And the only covering I had for it at that time was a tarp. Mm. And so I wasn't obviously working undercover at all. So I could only open it up uh, to use it in, you know, non-rainy weather. Right. Um, and that's not necessarily the the best thing to store a wooden object under a tarp in the summer. Right. Uh, I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. I did it. Um, But so it did limit uh, somewhat the way I could work. So when it was rainy, I just could not do my turning that day. And part of that is an inconvenience, but another part of it's just sort of rolling with the seasons and and Mm -hmm. seeing the value of each, um, each moment and circumstances. So instead of saying, okay, well, I only want to do this one thing and I'm going to schedule it for three days from now. Uh, and it, everything, I have to conform all of my circumstances to make this one thing happen. Uh, rather than doing that, you can sort of, we I found with all of my outdoor projects, I have to shift my thinking and instead look at the day. You know, Maybe I have a plan, but I have a plan B and a plan C too. Yeah. So that as the day unfolds, uh, whether it's weather or it's my family's needs or the needs of some work emergency or something. It's like, you know, Mortis and Tenon magazine, email emergency or whatever. (laughs) I have to be able to shift gears and do different things. And for me, it's just sort of uh, connected me to the seasonality of life that um, there are times for doing certain types of work. Winter is when I write, summer's when I do a lot of farming. We have the uh, magazine production cycle. So I guess the thing is, I just, what I keep realizing more and more is to sort of, to roll with it, mm. to embrace the seasonality and say, what's, what's a good thing to do right now? 
Yeah. Yeah. And it, it reminds me a lot, you know, when, when you are outside and you become aware of the changes day to day, um, like this spring, um, springtime always fascinates me because there's just a sense of, you know, expectancy and waiting. And you're like, when are the, when are the green things going to pop up and what will they be? And, you know, where will the violets start blooming and where are the star flowers going to start? You know, when are they going to start blooming? And, um, you know, when you're watching that every day presents something new. And I think about, um, like in, uh, in the book, woodworking in Estonia, which has been uh, re republished, reprinted by Lost Art Press a few years ago now. Um, it talks about some of the, um, uh, the, the folk practices of cutting wood at specific times of the year under a specific, you know, moon or um, in a specific season for different purposes. And, uh, you know, for, for years, people look at that and go, oh my goodness, well, that's just superstition or whatever. But um, more and more, uh, they're, they're finding that such practices actually had a really pragmatic uh, basis to them. Um, you know, if you harvest wood during a certain season, there's less, uh, less sap in the sapwood. And so it can dry in a more uh, stable way. Uh, just different things like that, um, that were genuine considerations for the process of, of building something, making something, you know, they, they look at trees that were uh, more affected by winds from certain directions. And, uh, that was part of the analysis of, of the tree, you know, how is it affected by the wind? Because they recognize that trees are always responding to stresses and, if they respond in a certain way, that's probably less ideal for certain applications. Um, and this is all, these are considerations that we just don't have today, really. Uh, you know, I go and buy boards and I have no idea what, where that tree grew. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what country that tree grew in. Um, but when, uh, when you take the work outside, when you source your materials outside, you know, as locally as possible, uh, it really, um, presents a lot more, um, a, a lot more interesting variables to the whole thing. And yeah. you realize how much you, you don't know about, uh, the ways of, of doing things from the past. Yeah. It, actually, I was thinking about, you know, what can you do outside in the rain? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like, well, that, that day I got rained out, so I can't work outside. But I remember working on the the bitstock article. Oh yeah, and I wanted to harvest some <clears throat> crooked branches, and I think I had one piece I messed up or something, and I needed a different one. And it was downpouring, <laughs> and I didn't have any time left to just like, I'll get it tomorrow or something. And I just said, I realized how silly I was being. I don't want to go outside. Cause it's wet. Yeah, I'm just gonna Wait go a get minute. a shower instead. Why don't? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I just said, "Well, this is dumb," and so I just grabbed my little folding saw and I just walked out into the woods and I was drenched head to toe. Yeah. And who cares? Yeah, right. <laughs> I take a shower every right. day. So 
it was just um it was just one of those eye-opening things that sometimes i think the raindrops start coming and we all start running for the indoors right but we don't know why actually we're running yeah. from the rain um so many times we can just change our shirt or whatever yeah. and so i think you know things like harvesting materials uh so much of that is not dependent on the weather right um i have a, a friend who is a logger and i i talk with him all year long i say so how was how how's work going how was work this week and all year long he's telling me about working out in the woods hmm. you know he's out there every day of the week yeah uh, cutting wood so our ideas of what is possible outside and you know only on these really nice days where there's this light breeze and it's 68 degrees right and it's you know that's all absurd i think we uh have opportunities to work in all sorts of weather um and uh and when you do like like mike's video um the greenwood video he's out there in the winter and doing all these different in, in all these situations um and i think it just opens up all these new uh vantage points on the world yeah and uh another thing that that we can do is um you know take take a, a cue from you know the the uk the um the greenwood workers over there who set up what i i call greenwood shelters right and it's just a a very simple it's like a single pitch tarp structure usually and you can throw your spring pole lathe in there you can bring out a chair to sit and whittle and um uh, I, you know, they, they get a f more rain than we do over there, more drizzly days, more, uh, cloudy, overcast, wet, damp weather. Um, but such a very simple structure, it just creates a new, new workspace. It's a, yeah. a new room. It's an outdoor room, um, where thing tools are reasonably safe. You probably don't want to leave them out there for, for days on end. Or if you do, you want to put some some tallow on them or something to keep the rust away. Throw them in a bucket of oil. Throw them in a bucket of oil. Um, but, uh, you know, the one thing I was thinking of, uh, tasks you can do outside on rainy days, is uh, last year at the uh, CSF um, blacksmith shop project, on that rainy day where uh, a lot of the crew was like, they're going to do some laundry, they're going to... Um, you brought a bunch of them down to Lee Nielsen. Yep. And the... Um, those who remained took the, the ridge beam and brought it in under a tent over here, you know, open-sided tent, and they were chopping joinery as the rain came down. And that was pretty awesome. I and mean, what a great uh, atmosphere for that kind of work. You know, the tap, tap, tap of the mallet and the drip, drip, drip of the rain. And Yeah. Um, I mean, how many, how many films have you seen start with this beautiful setting of like the rain dropping and, you know, raindrops in the puddles and stuff yeah that's because it's it's beautiful yeah, if we just shift is. our minds and instead of thinking oh yucky it's wet and we can yeah. just embrace it and then it, it opens up all these different opportunities so then working outside isn't an inconvenience it's a special thing right i mean one of the things that makes humans so unique is just our adaptability and when we become kind of encumbered by the pursuit of uh of comfort you know, we lose a lot of just opportunities at life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there really is nothing like walking in the woods in the rain. Um, so 
just kind of getting over what we think of as discomfort or uh, inconvenience. And what was it that G.K. Chesterton said? An adventure is an inconvenience rightly considered, right? (laughs) So great. Uh, So, you know, obviously there are some limits to bringing tools into the woods during downpours, but um, a lot of those can be overcome or worked around, or like Joshua was saying, uh, you can um, adapt and, and do certain processes and procedures in the rain and not damage your tools. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I was thinking about with this, this idea of working outside as opposed to in the shop is I was thinking about our workshop here mm. and how all year long here, all, all summer long here, you know, we've had the windows open, yep. the doors propped open and we don't have any artificial birds lighting. Birds fly in. <laughs> I've, I've on several occasions had to shoo out birds. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so not only are we, it's almost like we're working under a tarp. It's Mm -hmm. a really nice tarp, right? but it's basically, it's a roof and some kind of walls, but the windows are open. The doors are open. Um, and it's almost feels like it's more outside than inside. Yeah. Um, so again, I think it's important to, to think about, it's not like if you can't be in the shop, you can be outside or vice versa. Um, if you can turn your workshop into kind of outdoor feeling space, then it's just, it's just a a lovely atmosphere to be in, but it's kind of like the best of both worlds. Mm. Um, So, you know, I think uh, we've had before we've uh, heard, we have this um, canvas tarp that we've attached to the side of the building and it gives us more working space. um, And that kind of thing can be done too. But I think if we can, I would just encourage people to think about ways to get outside and to make the inside of their shop more like the outside. Right. Um, and even, you know, Mike's shop at home, you want to talk about the Yeah. Door. So, I mean, I have a, um, my shop is in the basement, right? And my workbench is as close to a window as I can get it. But um, actually when I put the bench there, there wasn't a window, right? So I had this big blank wall with a fluorescent light over top. And then it's a walkout basement, so there are these big swinging doors um, with no windows in them. And uh, there's a window back behind on the other side of the basement. But basically, if I anytime I go down there, um, unless it was the middle of the day, it's it's pitch black down there unless I turn the lights on. Uh, so I put a window in the double swinging doors, and now when I'm down there, I just have the the door open. Um, and so I can walk in and out and just having that daylight shining in there makes all the difference in the world. Uh, you know, it's, there are, I'm sure a lot of people listening who have what they would say less than ideal workshop situations. Like you're in a basement, you're, you're kind of in a corner somewhere. Um, but there are, there, there are options for trying to, uh, connect your work with the outdoors as much as possible, even if it's just, you know, propping open a little, a window somewhere or taking what you can, um, outside to sit and do some aspect of the operation. And that, that'll be really beneficial, um, for you (laughs) psychologically. And, uh, it'll, um, make the process more enjoyable. One of the other things we talked about was, um, 
just the fact that we we do like to kind of isolate ourselves in these climate controlled bubbles and um and it's it's definitely not really necessary yeah you know um an open window is way better than a a closed window and a running ac oh yeah absolutely well the ironic thing i think about um trying to climate control your woodworking situation your your workshop the ironic thing is you know you bring lumber in and you bring it into your shop from the outdoor storage or whatever you have your garage or something you bring it into your shop and you have to let it acclimate right you have to leave it in there for two weeks people tell us and then it sits there and it just mellows and then we can work it and build the thing but what's ironic about that is then you bring it back out into the world right and it experiences fluctuations and it moves and so winter and summer and winter and summer and, and all that and so i think it's it's sort of trying to treat a material in the production point as if it's not going to move right and then you unleash it into the world and it's it's going to go all over the place so i think better than that is to understand joinery and wood movement and just work with the whole thing there are definitely some operations that you want to time right because we don't have any climate control situation in our shop. Yeah. Um, if I'm going to edge joint two boards, I'm going to make that joint and glue it up that day. I'm not going to join it and then next week glue it up because right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to assume that it's going to work. Yeah. Um, and it even works like just fitting doors. Um, it's, I cannot fit a door if I don't know what the season is, mm -hmm. you know, if, if I'm not conscious of the fact that, oh, wow, this is August right now, the humidity is through the roof or, oh, wow, this is January. Yeah. I have to, when I install that door, because it's made out of wood, that has to be factored in. And the more we isolate ourselves from the natural elements, the, the more we're going to, the more opportunities to miss all that obvious reality of understanding wood in the way it's going to interact with the world um, yeah. and i think that's part of it's a big part of the beauty of wood that it's a wild thing that mm. wood is uh, beautiful and wild and that's why i think so many people are drawn to working with wood yeah it's a pretty impractical material because it moves right but we don't care yeah it's gorgeous yeah and so to try to fight against it um and to try to control it and restrict it is kind of futile. It's better to, to design with that characteristic in mind that um, the, the way that wood works. So, yeah. And so in, um, in issue nine, we have uh, a couple articles that um, kind of walk along this line. Um, I, I wrote an article about uh, dendrochronology and uh, what, what a fascinating subject to research i mean I, define dendrochronology okay so um it's basically greek for tree time but it's the study of um growth rings and how they relate to environmental factors um the, the way a tree grows it can indicate all kinds of different pieces of information about the the um, conditions um present in the time that that growth ring was laid down and then uh, dendrochronologists can establish, um, you know, master chronologies, they call them, by, by looking at the overlaps. So let's say you have a tree growing now, a pine tree that's 100 years old, and then you have a building that's uh, 60 years old. But in that building, there are framing members that were growing long before that pine tree 
started growing. So you can find overlaps in the growth ring patterns, like wide, narrow, wide, narrow, wide, narrow. Um, find those overlaps and establish a chronology that starts at the present and runs back to when uh, the framing members in that building were initially growing. And then, you know, these things can be followed back using artifacts, wooden objects, furniture, um, you know, old uh, building frames. And there are chronologies that run back many thousands of years. And uh, a lot of the uh, new and more modern research um, into dendrochronology is actually looking at the, the substance of the rings themselves, like the, the actual uh, elemental chemical makeup of the wood that's laid down by the trees in specific years. And they're learning about you know, solar storms, you know, a thousand years ago. Hmm. Um, but it's so fascinating. Yeah, because like the most basic uh, idea of dendrochronology is kind of like a barcode. Yeah. You know, when you scan a barcode, the <clears throat> way it knows what numbers that represents, it's the thickness of the bars and mm -hmm. the space between them. Yeah. And that, it's not a pattern, but that, the, that orientation, the way they're all laid out, tells the scanner, this means these numbers. Yeah. And it's just like that. Yeah. Um, so when we're thinking about tree rings, I think a lot of people think of tree rings as just... You count them you know, to figure out how old the tree yeah, is. Yeah, count them or it's like this one, then this one, then this one. It's just uh, alternating back and forth, hmm. early wood, late wood. But it's way more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So you could just say first a barcode that mm -hmm. each ring has different thicknesses and they're spaced, so they're spaced differently. And so they're kind of... A dendrochronologist to kind of, as it were, scan that barcode and say, right. "Oh, I see. So this was grown in this region, yeah, in this time, this yeah. year it was felled, yeah." But what you're saying is that now they're even going beyond that to the chemical makeup of each, yeah, of ring, the rings themselves, and they can understand what was going on environmentally in that year in that region, yeah, because they actually have parts of the atmosphere stored in the wood uh, from that year. So, you know, when you're looking at your, your dining room table, you know, this is a, the wood is actually storing the conditions of the years in which it was growing as a solid substance. Uh, so it's a bit mind blowing That's if you start trippy. to think about it kind of metaphysically. And, and so your article is called Scribes of Nature. Yeah. You know, because... Yeah, like you were saying, when you look at your dining table and you see all those rings on the end grain, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. It's not just cool. It, it also is a document of yeah. It's so much the history information. of nature. It's, it's more information than we even know how to read. But um, what I took away from, you know, researching that and writing it is just this, you know, greatly deepened sense of awe and appreciation of this, yeah. this material that we get to work, you know, um, we, we should not take for granted that wood is this, this living thing. Um, and it, it was, you know, the pine boards that you're setting aside for your Dutch tool chest were trees in the forest, you know, and the sun hit them and the winter storms blew through and an ice storm and, you know, the blue bluebird nest up in the branches. And I mean, these are all parts of the memory you know, built into those boards that you're going to turn into your tool chest. So, yeah, uh, good stuff to think about. Yeah, and I've been I've been reading uh, different philosophy of technology stuff, and I was, um, you know, reading about 
Martin Heidegger's uh, picture of technology and how it works. And he was talking about one of the problems that we, uh, we have is that we think of creation, the natural world, as what he called standing reserve, mm. which means it's just stuff. Yeah. Raw and materials. So, raw materials. Right. Yeah, exactly. So when we look at the natural world as just standing reserve, just stuff to be used, just think about the problems that can create. Yeah. Um, not just wood and trees, but also animals. You know, when we raise animals and they're just stuff, it's just meat. Mm-hmm. It changes the way you interact with the animals and the way you appreciate or lose appreciation for animals. Um, and it doesn't, that doesn't mean that we don't take trees down. It doesn't mean that we don't eat meat. But it means that when we only look at it as just raw material stuff, we miss the beauty of what it is. Mm-hmm. And so he, talk, he describes this way of interacting with the world as inframing, that we inframe the world. Um, and so I think being able to recover that and to first of all identify that and in ourselves and move away from that and say and to learn to wonder and to learn to experience reverence for uh, the natural world uh i think is a a path forward um and i just have been thinking about so there's this there's this philosopher talking about that this sort of intangible concept Hmm. but then what does that mean for building something right and I think like, so my article in issue nine, I have, I built a shaving horse. I actually built it a year ago, but I wanted to use it for a year before I wrote about it. Yep. Um, the, possibly the best title of any article ever featured in Mortis and Tenon. <laughs> okay. What so, is it called? So the, the title of the article is Iterative Design in uh, Vernacular Workholding. That sounds very fancy. Mm. But the subtitle is a dumbhead's guide to to holding stuff. Yeah, um, <laughs> and if you know anything about shaving horses, you know what a dumbhead is. Uh, so yeah, but thinking about building a shaving horse, I wanted to make a, a continental or a, a dumbhead style shaving horse, and I had I've seen some old shaving horses that the head is not just cut out of one block, but it's actually a, a curved branch. Mm-hmm. And, and so that the arm that extends up through the, the plank turns, makes a 90 degree turn as the head. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Isn't that Chester Cornet had a shaving horse like that? It was like a, a bent L or something. Yep. Yeah, Chester Cornet. And then I think I saw one that Roy Underhill had and um, Skip Brack at the uh, the uh, Davistown Museum has one there. I've seen them around at different places. So I thought, wow, wouldn't that be cool to make a shaving horse with a curved branch? Mm. Um, I, I honestly haven't seen too many people do that today. Mm. So I thought, okay, well, if I want to design this shaving horse, I have to start with a tree. Right. Because you can't design the whole thing and then go to try to find that perfect right. tree that's going to make it, make it work. So I started looking outside and tried to find uh, a curved, a crazy curved branch that would be just right for what I needed. Um, and so I think connecting this idea of, you know, Heidegger telling us we need to learn to appreciate creation, uh, looking at trees and, and seeing the uniqueness of each tree and saying, how can I have this in my life? How can I appreciate it for what it is? Um, and then it just, just so happens Uh that when you appreciate it for what it is, 
it works out better than anything else. Yeah. So you think about a curved branch and that, that grind is continuous from the, the tip of the dumb head, the, the nose of the dumb head, mm-hmm. all the way down the arm, it's continuous grind. Um, and so things like that, I think, uh, when you learn to work with these things as they are uh, and with their nature, it works out in your favor. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and, uh, you know, when we, um, when, when was it that you, you built that? Did you build that for, um, our workshop? That was, it was before, before the workshop, the workshop yep. last year. Um, cause both of us built, uh, a shaving horse for that workshop. And I had gone, um, back into the woods. One of our students wanted to build a chair. So I had gone back into our woods to find, um, an ash tree to cut and uh, I think that it was really funny because it was that time of spring when the mosquitoes are at their absolute, you know, most hideous in the black flies, right? It's that crossover season, black flies and mosquitoes. And I was back in the swamp cutting <laughs> this ash tree. And um, I have a lot of, you know, fond memories of felling that tree and then carrying it out. And so that that tree furnished... Um, all the all the ash parts for the chair that one of our students made and then furnished uh, legs for uh, shaving horses yeah. and so um, it really is kind of a wonderful history to have in that and all those all those pieces will always be connected you know in our our memories and also if future dendrochronologists want to go and analyze them <laughs> they'll say whoa how on earth is this this chair in New York City from the same tree as these two shaving horses up here. That is really strange. Wow. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah. So we're creating mysteries for future generations. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Um, And me, I think the legs, uh, yeah, the legs were just um, each leg was around. Yeah. So we didn't even shape them to be round. Right. We used the, it was a, what, like a, three and a half inch diameter yep. or whatever that I was pulling out of. It was, must've been a tall, straight, mm-hmm. skinny little tree. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to be able to get the legs, you just cut them to length and shape a tenon on the end. Yep. Done. Yeah. I wanted to clean mine up at the end and, you know, but that's, it's just planing off the, the surface. Yeah. Uh, uh, shaving the surface. So um, yeah, being able to use this stuff uh for what it is, is just one of the, for me, it's one of the primary benefits to working outside. But obviously, if you have a, a five by 10 closet workspace, you have a whole world outside that you can work in, too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I always uh, like uh, having in mind the picture that uh, Peter Follinsby would share when he'd uh, go to the the playground with, with, um, you know, one of his kids or something, you know, and he's, he'd be sitting there with his basket with his spoon carving supplies, just sitting on the bench and carving spoons. And he said, you get some strange looks from people at first when they see this guy with a big beard and a basket full of knives. But when they got to know him, they weren't so frightened. <laughs> I think, well, that is, I mean, he's bringing his woodworking wherever he goes. Yeah. And then the other uh, story that Yoga Sunkfist shares about his, his father, Vili on the train carving spoons. 
I just love that, you know, sitting by the window with his spoon and his spoon knife, um, watching the landscape go by. Uh, Do they let you do that anymore? Mm, Probably (laughs) not. But maybe not. Maybe not the train. Not the train. But uh, there are all kinds of opportunities uh, to to get out there and appreciate um, the natural world as you work with wood. Uh, So thank you all for listening to the Mortise and Tenon podcast. Uh, If you haven't already, you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or questions, uh, please leave them below. Um, Comment and share with us your thoughts, and we'd love to respond. So uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.